we've been talking about contemplation. We've been talking about contemplative experience. And we're, we're just uh, getting up to the end of really trying to tie all of this together. And one of the things that I've been saying in here for years is that if we do nothing else, as long as we can show people where the X is over the treasure on the map, that's about as much as we can do. I mean, that's a good thing. Because then when you're digging, you're actually getting to where you want to go and you're not just digging holes, see? We've got to get the treasure on the, the X over the treasure. Got to get this together. Oh, she's looking for her thing. Yeah. And so this has been something that I've been thinking about. How do, how do we most clearly communicate, you know, what obviously can't be communicated, express what is inexpressible, but communicate the direction, communicate what it is that we're trying to do when we're trying to do contemplation. And so <laughs> I always remember I have the, the voice of the main pastor who was... Um, uh, forming me when I was doing pastoral formation and pastoral training. And he said, when you're doing a sermon, never use yourself as a sermon in illustration. You know, But it's like, how am I going to do that? I mean, my experience is what I can tell you. My experience is, is how I can maybe try to illustrate the, the, the mind bending that I went through trying to get these concepts. And then hopefully that that can help you to see where the X is over your treasure map. And so what I wanted to do is to read um, a short uh, journal entry that I wrote uh, in 1993, September 21st, 1993, and I started at 6.45 a.m. Yeah, and they say I'm OCD. Come on. But, um, yeah, this was just six months before Marion and I were married, and I was living alone in an apartment uh, in Huntington Beach, and I had my routine. You know, I was working at being a monk in the city. That's what I was, that my whole thing was just to, to keep silent, to keep still, to keep solitude, to keep all those things, and to see what I could accomplish. And so this is what I wrote that particular morning. Down by the pool, near the waterfall, in semi-darkness, listening to the water. Are you in the water, Lord? When the leaves move high overhead, are you in the trees? Where are you? Where do I go to listen? What do I listen for? How do I listen? Do I strain? Do I relax? Is it obvious? Subtle? Elijah in the cave hiding from Jezebel knew how to listen, what to listen for. Even in his despair and self-pity, his desire to die, to give up. He knew the sound of your voice. When the wind tore into the mountain, he knew you were not there. The earthquake, the fire, the same. But when the still voice, the whisper barely displaced the air at the back of his cave, he wrapped his mantle around his face and went out to meet you. I love that image. Silent compliance, obedience, submission. I look down and I see ants on the ground swarming over something, carrying off pieces of it in the long, snaking column back to their queen. Such great activity, so much effort, so completely silent. I look, no sound. Yet I imagine if I was suddenly ant-sized, standing near, the sound would be of a fierce battle or frenzied construction site, tearing, scraping, scuffling, buzzing. I'd put my hands over my ears and run. 
But hearing nothing, I sit back and watch. Soundproof. My ears are too big for such things. The mass of my eardrums cannot be moved, vibrated by such small variations in air pressure. If I could somehow thin them out, refine them, a new world of sound would open up until I could hear the ants. I think that's where you are, Lord, right in front of me like these ants, shouting, talking, waving at me right before my face. But I hear only what I'm capable of hearing, see what I'm willing to see, relate as my spiritual, emotional maturity dictates. I think your revelation is all around me, and I walk right past, through, in despair, because I can't find it. Does it frustrate you, Lord, that I'm so deaf and blind, that my ears and spirit are too thick and heavy to be moved by you? Do you get tired of waving your arms and shouting from behind the glass I put up between us? Elijah knew how to listen, yet still despaired. I can't hear and despair too. Whose despair is blacker? The despair of knowledge or ignorance? Elijah came out of his cave at your call. I only pray that I hear when you call me out of mine. So 29 years ago, 28 years ago, that was a snapshot, a snapshot of the condition my condition was in. If you remember that song, then you're dating yourself. If you want to get an extra bag of cards, who, who, was a, who sang that song? Anybody? I bet Vernon knows back there. He's shouting out, first edition, Kenny Rogers, right? So it's the snapshot of the condition my condition was in early in my spiritual formation. Now, what was my condition? There's some clues in the, in the journal entry. You know, what was I thinking? What was I feeling? What was I doing at that moment when I wrote those words? I can tell you, and some of it's in, the, in what you just heard. What I was thinking was is that I had no idea how to find God. I had no idea how to hear his voice. I had no idea how to pursue the presence of God. And I had the sense that I was doing it all wrong. And so I was thinking about that constantly. I must be doing something wrong. This is not working out. It's not giving me the desired result. So what was I feeling at the moment? I was feeling a lot of anxiety. I was worrying. Even despair over ever being able to get it right. To be able to connect with God the way I heard others were connecting with God, which of course is a kiss of death to compare yourself to somebody else's expression of what they're experiencing, which has nothing to do with the actual experience of it. It's just an expression. But to compare those two, it's like comparing the best of one system to the worst of another and think you're getting somewhere in the neighborhood of apples to apples. But I was doing that a lot. But what was I doing? Well, I was trying to be a monk in the city. I was trying to keep my apartment as a monk's cell, quiet, and I had my routine, daily routine. I was up at 5 o'clock every morning, out the door by 5.15, running until in the neighborhood of 6, 6.15, and then I'd go and sit by the pool, and I'd cool down there, and I'd do a centering prayer sit, and then from there I'd go back upstairs, and usually I would journal for a while, and then get ready and start the workday. 
And I did that five, six days a week. Sunday was different because I was going to church. But that was the routine, day in, day out. And then at night, there was be more running and journal entry and this and that. But I was trying to keep this practice, this program that I had set for myself going. And I kept on doing it day in and day out, even though I didn't feel in a lot of ways that I was getting it, quote unquote. But the awareness in me was building, and I was completely unaware of it. It was building, but I didn't know it. I didn't see it. I didn't recognize it, I suppose, in the way that I expected it to be. And so I was looking at something else, but at least I kept showing up. And this journal entry is an example of my awareness starting to break through into a consciousness. I mean, at least I was starting to understand that God was right in front of my face. He wasn't out there someplace for me to go and journey and seek and find. He was right here. All I had to do was thin out my ears somehow, and I could start to hear the things that were not available to me that couldn't shake the eardrums at this point. So I was following a path. I read about contemplative prayer. I read about contemplative practice. I read the mystics. I read everything. You know, that's the way I work. You know, just kind of study myself to death. And I was trying to get an intellectual concept that I could grab by the throat and make mine. And so I read about all the tools that I needed. And then I built my own program based on everything that I was studying. And I kept showing up to that program. Even though I had no idea how it really worked, I just was showing up to what I had read about and what I had been told about. And so I showed up every day at 5 a.m. and I started the process. And it seems like this entry would indicate that I was starting to get it, right? I was starting to have a breakthrough, starting to understand how this whole thing really started to, was going to work. But at the time, I remember there was still no sense of certainty. There was no sense of relief that I felt at the moment even though I put those words down on paper. Now, my writing would always come after the run. The writing would happen after the run and after the centering prayer sit by the pool outside. And when I sat down to write, I would keep it as automatic as possible. In that sense, I wasn't thinking about the actual words. I wasn't thinking about grammar and syntax, even though it came out that way. You know, it's amazing when I look back at the actual handwritten journal, there's no edits. I wasn't editing it. You know, there might be a cross out here or there if I just flubbed a word, but I was trying not to think about the words. I was just putting things down. It was amazing how it would flow in that order. The run, which was a prayer. It was my time of prayer. And then the actual sit was another time of getting out of the way. And then I'd go up and write, and stuff was bubbling up that I had no idea about, and it would just flow. It was as if I just was putting the pen down on the paper and watching the words form as they went across line by line. And I was just part of the process, but I wasn't really in charge of the process. And yet when I read that, it was lucid, it was rational, it made sense, right? So was I thinking about what I was going to write as I was running? Was I thinking about what I wanted to put down when I was sitting by the pool? I remember that morning. I remember when I saw the ants that morning. You know, I remember the run. So often the runs 
that would start in the dark, right? And it was a route that I took, same route every time, went through Golden West College and came back around. And I would just follow, I remember calling them the, the rivers, the concrete rivers, the sidewalks, right? I would just follow the sidewalk. And I had the path already memorized, and so I would just follow my path, and it was automatic. And I had the sense often, and I remember this morning as well, that I'd be floating above myself and just being carried along for the ride, you know? Not forming words, but a time of that kind of connection, that type of prayer. And it would be a good run. And then I came back and I would sit. And I remember just opening my eyes and looking around and seeing this big knot of ants around something that had died. I don't know if it was a snail or what it was. You couldn't see. It was covered with ants. And then this column that went under the chair and snaked off somewhere into the bushes. And I was just sitting there watching it. But there were no words. I wasn't thinking words at the time. I just remember watching this and just being a part of this process. It was later when I sat down to write that I realized, or I guess I found out what my brain was thinking because it actually then formed words. And it really wasn't so much while I was writing. It was afterwards coming back and reading it again that it started to make a different kind of sense. And so I was really sort of an observer to the whole process that morning, even the writing. Just put the pen down, watch it move across the page. Now, I know that I had read First Kings recently, so I had the Elijah story in my mind. So that was already in there, right? And I had been worrying constantly and feeling kind of desperate about the fact that I wasn't really getting this. It didn't seem like I knew what I was doing. And I had just seen the ants, of course, as I was sitting there. And then it all came together on the page as I put the pen down. And as I read it later... I started to see something there. But it wasn't a conscious breakthrough at the time. It was just another piece of a puzzle, I think, is the best way that I can put it. Another piece that seemed to fit over here. And so I didn't know it at the time. And I didn't have the vocabulary to express it. But doing the practice that I was doing every day, regardless of how I felt about it, regardless of where I felt it was taking me, was taking me for a ride. It was taking me someplace. The repeated running, the repeated sitting, was what I was doing to create a wordless experience of being. Now, I can express that to you now, but I didn't experience it cognitively that way. I was just doing the do, right? Now I can say I understand how I was creating that environment. As creating that ability to have this wordless experience of just being somewhere. And this time of just being over and over again created an expression that was peculiar to me. I wrote it down. You might not want to write it down. Maybe you're going to draw it. Maybe you're going to dance it. I don't know. We all are going to express the experience of being that we have in some way. But it'll be peculiar to each one of us the way that we express ourselves. And so this is what was happening as I was just spending this time in this place. We talk a lot about com uh, contemplation. We talk a lot about mysticism in here. And maybe those words sound like they're interchangeable to you. Contemplative, mystic. Contemplation, mysticism. Are they the same? Are they absolute synonyms for each other? But the truth is, not exactly. They're related, of course. But to oversimplify it, contemplation is a way of seeing. Mysticism is a way of being, if you want to take a look at it that way. 
Contemplation is what you do to prepare for a mystical experience. And what's a mystical experience? It's the experience of pure being. It's an experience of pure presence. Wordless, thoughtless, not irrational, but some call it transrational. I kind of liked extra rational. You know, it's kind of beyond rationality. It's not bounded by it. But it doesn't defy it either. Extra rational. All mystics try to express their experience after they have it. But they're not thinking about the experience during it. Or it's not a mystical experience at all. That's the key. You can't be thinking about the experience while you're having it or you lose it. Contemplation, then, is a set of practices, including meditation, including mindful presence and and mindfulness exercises, that allow us to be present, allow us to just be. And we don't need to fully understand how contemplation works in order to practice it. We just need to understand the goal of contemplation as we're using the term. And the goal is choicelessness. There's a word for you, choicelessness. And we'll talk about that here. The time that we spend in contemplative praxis takes us through some stages. You know, the four S's, we've talked about it here. Silence, solitude, stillness, simplicity. Those are tools of contemplation. And stillness is kind of a, 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 an, an effect to the cause of silence and solitude and simplicity as well. And so they all work together to form a different way of seeing life, different way of seeing how things fit together. The process in meditation and mindfulness of stepping away from our conscious thoughts and how they bind us inside our egoic bubble and inside the thoughts that we already have solidified from our entire lives are the tools that we use to strip away the distractions and the attachments. And really, that's what we're talking about. The distractions are everything around us that we use to distract us from real purpose, to distract us from who we are inside, deeply inside. And we have attachments to those distractions, you know? Even if they're negative attachments, we don't like something, we do like something. Our preferences are also distractions and they're also attachments. But the time spent in contemplation is loosening the hold that those attachments have on us. We're starting to see ourselves as having meaning and purpose and identity apart from those things that we didn't see before. We were so identified with them, so connected with them, that we were inside them and they thought they were us, and they're not. And we can start to see how that starts to loosen its grip on us, how the distractions start to fade in intensity and volume. And this is what we're doing. We're building awareness of the unconscious drives that are really driving our bus, the drives, the obsessive thoughts and the, and the compulsive action that really is in charge of our thought and behavior patterns. And this time spent using the tools of contemplation are creating the necessary balance in us, the mindful presence in us, to be able to realize the essential connection of everyone and everything. And then after that, we build the awareness to become aware of this choicelessness that I was talking about, what we're really doing in in contemplation. The idea in contemplation is not to become passive. You can still be very active. 
Someone just asked me a few days ago, he said, you know, I'm really having trouble with this idea of contemplation as we've been talking about it because I feel I need to get active politically in my hometown. He's in another state. I said, well, contemplation is not passive. Contemplation doesn't negate action. What contemplation will do is prepare you so that when you do act in your community in one way or another, you'll actually be a part of the solution and not just more of a part of the problem. Because you'll be able to come at that position, that, that, that activity, that cause, whatever you are doing, with some balance, with some emotional regulation, you know, with your obsessive and compulsive thought patterns in check. Occupying liminal space so that you can see both sides of an argument and you can see the person opposite you as still being a person of value, still being someone that deserves your consideration to listen to what they have to say. This is what contemplation is preparing us for, to be not unaware but hyper-aware, not checking out but actually aware of everything that is going on, both sensory input, internal thoughts, feelings, outside voices, to be aware of all of that, but to choose not to let your focus go to a point on any one of them. That's how we can kind of define a thought. A thought is our focus coming to a point on any one item. That would be a thought, normally with words attached, right? So we are aware, but we're choosing not to think about anything that is in our environment at the moment, either internally or externally. Choiceless awareness, choicelessness, that's what we're trying to get. We're trying to practice that in contemplation. We're trying to go back to that place over and over again, be able to repeatedly get there and get there quicker and quicker and stay there longer and longer. So we have that as a tool in our belt when we're going through our day, we can move back into that place of choicelessness so that we can actually see what's going on, be aware of everything that's going on, and not just be shelled off by our preferences, by our distractions, by our attachments. We can transcend them. We can see what's going on and stay in that place of choicelessness and just be able to choose, decide. This is where we're trying to do. This is the X over the treasure on the treasure map. Choiceless awareness, to be able to get there because that is the jumping off point for the mystical experience. That is a jumping off point for being able to connect with God, being to being, presence to presence, with no loss in translation. As we've said so many times, God's native language is silence. What else could it possibly be? If we want to talk to God with no loss in translation, then we have to learn silence. We have to be comfortable with silence. We have to think silence. We're not translating into another language. We are thinking in God's language, which is silence, which is to say we're not thinking at all. We are just being. This is what contemplation is offering us as the practice to get us to that way of being, to that experience of just pure presence and pure being. Now, this sounds, I don't know how it sounds to you. Maybe it sounds nuts. But at least it should sound rational. It should sound kind of ordered. And maybe it sounds neat. Hey, there's these stages you get to go through. And it's just one after another. It's kind of like the stages of grief. Oh, yeah, you know, I just need to go through denial and then anger and then bargaining. And then I get to acceptance. Yay, me. 
Does it ever work out that way? It's a messy process. You skip over one, you come back to the other, you circle around again, and then when you think you put a stake through the heart of that one, it comes back a little bit later. Delayed reactions. I mean, it is a messy process. This is going to be the same way. I put it in words to try to help you to put an X over your treasure map, but don't expect that the process is going to be ordered. And most importantly, don't expect that the process is going to be under control. I mean, the whole process of contemplation is to take you out of the control, take you out of the driver's seat, to allow you to open up and become vulnerable enough just to experience what is there, to experience what comes. Now, you're not a potted plant on the, uh, you know, at the same time. You still have choices and decisions that you can make. But it's to get out of the way. To let that power greater than yourself really be the driver. To submit to that power that's greater than yourself. Now, if you know that choicelessness is your goal, you can still do all the things that you needed to do before, but you, now you do them differently. Now, it sounds like maybe this whole process sounds to you like drudgery. Like, yeah, I'm not going to have to really put effort into this and be thinking about this all the time. And it's like, no. Let's use Brother Lawrence as our hero here. Let's use Brother Lawrence as our guide. Brother Lawrence is the one who said, hey, you don't have to invent all these artificial ways of coming to God. Just do what you do all day long, but do it for the sake of God. Do it with a sense of the presence of God. And so these contemplative principles, the goal that we're trying to reach of this choiceless awareness can be reached in anything that you do. When I was going on those runs, I was in a state of choiceless awareness. I had no idea that I would call it that 30 years later. You know, I would have had no idea what it meant back then. I was experiencing it because I was getting up and I was running. And I was trying to be the monk in the city. And it was happening, but I didn't understand it. It took a while for it to build up in me and finally break through into consciousness and finally allow me to be able to express it and then finally allow me to understand it and then finally allow me to try to teach it. It was a process. But it was just the experience of it. So if you know that choiceless awareness is your goal, you can apply that to anything that you do. You don't have to spend a lot of extra time, but you can write, you can run, you can walk, you can bike, you can paint, you can work choicelessly if that's what you intend to do. Now it's going to really help if you're spending time offline in meditation or centering prayer because that's where you really learn the technique. That's how you learn. How do you recover when your thoughts have taken you out? How do you recover when some emotion has triggered you? How do you recover when you're hearing all the noise around you? And how do you come back? How do you recover and come back to that place of choiceless awareness, that place of balance, that place of presence? If you're doing that, it can help you as you're going through the rest of your day and trying to experience that choicelessly as well. And of course, yes, we do have to think at times. We do have to plan. We do have to conceive projects and do whatever we do. But as soon as we do that, like a prairie dog sticking his head above to get the lay of the land, drops right back down into the burrow because that's where he lives. We pop our heads up. We do the thinking. We do the planning. We do the abstract and then we come right back down into the valley of our lives and live there and experience there as wordlessly and choicelessly as possible. In other words, 
What we're doing is we're engaging the task within the task. All the tasks that we do all day long. Think about what you do all day long on a typical day. Do you go to work? Are you at home? Are you working at home? Are you working remotely? What are you doing? All those tasks have that deeper task within that can be approached choicelessly, with choiceless awareness, if that's what we intend to do. Now, that means that we have to have the mechanics of our task enough under our fingers that they're in muscle memory. Think of riding a bike. You're riding a bike. How long has it been since you rode a bike? It's like riding a bike. Get back on a bike. It'll be there for you, right? Why will it be there for you? Because it's in muscle memory. If you're riding a bike, all the intricacies of the balance that you're constantly trying to achieve, it gets easier the faster you go, sure. But you're still balancing. You're still turning. All the mechanics of actually riding the bike, you're not thinking about that. If you are, you're probably going to (laughs) fall. It's the very fact that you can do it without thinking about it. And you have to be completely watchful. You've got to be aware of 360 degrees around you so that you don't get hit by a car, so you don't hit something else. Don't hit that curb, that stop sign. All that is going on, and you're not even thinking about it. You're aware, you're hyper-aware, hopefully, but you're not thinking about it. All of that is happening. You're just feeling the exhilaration of the ride. You're just feeling the wind through your hair. You're just smelling the sea breeze, not thinking about that either. But it's like an overload of senses and sensory input that you're aware of as you're doing this intricate task, but you're not thinking about it. So we can do that with all our tasks. If you're at your job, think about what your job is, your main work. You probably have that down so you can do it automatically in your sleep. But if you're doing your job and you're thinking about something else, usually it's going to be negative because we think about the things that are bothering us. We think about the things that are left undone. Then your experience of your job is going to be miserable. If you're fixating on the person who's annoying you, the customer or the coworker or the boss, then it's going to be a miserable experience. But if you can move down choicelessly into the task within the task and just, I mean, if you're typing, Typing is an amazing thing. How do your fingers know where to go? I mean, you can close your eyes and you can visualize the keyboard, and and, and that's an amazing skill. And we just do it without thinking about it, without any kind of, of gratitude or amazement about what it really is when we're typing, like riding a bike. You're typing. You're reading. I mean, everything we do is really amazing. If you think about it, what's really going on that we can transmit thoughts by these little shapes on a screen and it can go around the world like that. I mean, this is incredible stuff. To be aware of that without thinking about it and to understand how this work connects with somebody else's work and how this serves this person over here and the web of connection and how everything you do creates ripples that connect with everyone else. Can that be a part of your experience? Not rationally but experientially, can you start to appreciate what it is that you do as a cog in the wheel of something larger? You will have that choiceless experience throughout your day. You will have what Paul calls praying continuously if we can move into that space. And if you actually add in the quiet time we're talking about, the carved out time, 
what I like to call offline time, so that you're actually practicing these techniques, then so much the better. Add in that formal practice. Add in meditation. Add in centering prayer. Add in journaling. Anything that you can also do choicelessly, contemplatively, so that it's adding to your ability when the going gets really tough to be able to recognize that and recognize that your reaction is not who you are. It's a part of you. But you can step aside from it, recover, and come right back into the moment again and get better and better at doing that and maintaining the kind of balance that others will recognize in you as something that they need in their lives. You'll find people coming up to you and asking you for advice, wanting to talk to you about just the things that they're going through. And you'll find that they then can use you as a model to get themselves regulated. That's the way this works, to be part of that whole web, that whole tapestry, right? And before you know it, you're a monk in the city. That's the way this works. You know, as Anne Voskamp, she's a Canadian writer, she says it a lot better than I just did. And I wanted to read something that she put out that, uh, see if this kind of seals the deal for you. She writes, so you asked how. I've been thinking about your question, the one you asked the other day about how to live your life. I don't know much, and there's a lot more than just this, but maybe it's a bit of how Mary Oliver put it. Instructions for living a life. One, pay attention. Two, be astonished. And three, tell about it. Now, I, put, I just remembered, I put this in your handout, so you don't need to take notes. In fact, you can read along with me because it's all there. So three instructions for living life. Pay attention, be astonished, and tell about it. And some days I think maybe she sort of stole the words of Jesus because they sound like the essence of a life of communion, a life of thanksgiving, a Eucharistic life. Pay attention. Pay attention to the shades of the sky over you and the smell of the soil under you and the unexpected ways of the souls all around you. Pay attention to the lilies of the field to the soft carpet of hair on the curves of a baby's ear, to the warmth of sun as you lay on the back lawn and breathe. Pay attention long enough to experience life, and you buy your brain enough food so it doesn't starve. Turn off your phone. Be still. Be present. And you get the gift of now. Do it often. Grab a lifeline by stepping offline. You'll find your true self when you look for your reflection in the eyes of souls and not the glare of screens. And be okay with not being seen or heard. It will let you hear and see better. And be okay with not being liked. Live, I'm sorry, life and art are never about applause. Pay attention and forget paying for the internet things because that can catch you up and leave you feeling disoriented and discontent and discredited. That can make your closet hurt and your wallet hurt and your very soul hurt because the frame of your life wasn't meant to carry the burden of their stuff. Pay attention to the ugly and beautiful and the beauty of Christ playing in 10,000 unlikely places the face of Christ and the face of suffering. You buy awe when you pay attention. 
practice paying attention and you daily practice the scales of creativity. Pay attention and let go of perfection. Perfectionism is slow death by self. It will kill your skill, your spark, your art, your soul. And then go ahead and be astonished. Grow beautifully deaf to the scoffing of the cynics who suit up in their everyday steely sarcasm to numb themselves to a vulnerable joy. The cynics who only wear armor to shield the heart from the beauty that wounds. The weary who steel themselves against the wounds of all this glory. It can seem easier to reject the world before the world hurts you. Be astonished by the depths of grief which are but the foundations of the heights of joy. And grief and joy are of the same landscape of any soul really alive. And be astonished by oppression and aggression and transgressions. And be astonished. Be a psalmist. And be admonished to just be ravished by a world that makes children laugh, wonder at the spray of sprinklers, and the splatter of water balloons and go ahead and be like a child and say again, again to the rising of the sun and again, again to the crashing of waves and be astonished like the children for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Don't go to bed at night until you have read from the dictionary, the lectionary and pages of poetry are absolutely necessary. Then go tell about it. Tell about what happens when you pay attention, when you are astonished, when you have tasted the gospel. Tell it to the kid lost in the park, the guy lost in the dark, the family losing their matriarch, a lost generation that needs to be marked by him before they can make a mark for him. Pay attention. Be astonished. Tell about it. Pay attention. But pay attention choicelessly, thoughtlessly, wordlessly, contemplatively. Be astonished, but be astonished immersively, mystically, in pure being, in pure presence. And then tell about it the best you can. <laughs> you can only point. You will never fully explain or express what is going on inside or goes on in this place, in this mystical place. But you do your best. Use your words, use your dance, use your images, whatever you use. And you do all this remembering that the God that we seek is not out there somewhere to be found. God is already here, right now, right in our face like that column of ants that we will never see until we sit still, quietly, long enough to notice what's going on right at our feet. That column of ants that we'll never hear until we can thin our thick eardrums out and become sensitive enough to hear that still, small voice. Until we spend enough time learning to see that God is really here. We're going to miss God everywhere. But once we become unattached to everything that blocks our view, then God is right in front of us. And we know it. 
and we can learn to be convinced of it and to rest in it. And then we can say with Augustine, my heart is restless until it rests in thee because we will have had the experience of the rest to know how it differs from all the rest. Let's pray. Father, help us. We're all at different places on this journey. We're all coming at this with different life experience, different maybe desire, different determination. We all want the same thing, Lord. But meet us wherever we are and help us to get a step closer to you and then another step after that. Help us to understand enough of of what the goal that you've been trying to show us and trying to teach us is so that we can, in all our moments, turn our consciousness, our awareness toward that goal, to find it in the daily activities of our lives. And then to spend and carve out the time that we need to learn more and more of what it means to be fully present to you and each other. We want this, Father. Help us to want it enough to actually begin and see where the road takes us. But in everything we do, help us to get more and more comfortable with the idea that you are always right here, as close as our next breath, closer than our next thought, that we don't have to go looking for you We just need to back into your embrace. Thank you for this, Lord. And thank you for everyone and everything that you've given us to show us the way. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's all stand.